Unlike last week with Psalm 35, this week's psalm is much shorter and much more to the point. I know that will make some of you very happy. I want to start this morning just by asking you a couple questions. Are any of you surprised when you're watching one of those nature shows and you see a lion and it just decides to take down a gazelle and have lunch? I mean, does that, does that surprise any of y'all that, that a lion would want to eat? I mean, are you surprised when you watch a politician and they lie? I mean, does that, does that surprise you? Does that surprise anybody in this room? You know, the funny thing is, one of the things I hear a lot in, in counseling and, and that uh, bothers people and drives people crazy is that they are surprised when sinners sin. It's, it's like just this, I, I can't believe it happened. And it's like, I'm thinking to myself, well, it, it's in their description. They're sinners. Meaning that's what they do. You know, like, like, why does that surprise you? And God doesn't want us to be surprised in this world. He, he wants us to be ready. If, if you read his word, he is very upfront. He is very clear. He's very honest about the world that we live in. Because we live in a fallen world with fallen people, we should expect, expect, to encounter evil regularly. That, that should not surprise us, Christian. Like that, that shouldn't surprise you this morning. That, that when you leave here and you go to the restaurant, you run into sinners who are sinning. When, when you go back to your job tomorrow and, and people are slacking off and they're not really working, they're not really doing what they're supposed to, that, that shouldn't shock you, that shouldn't surprise you. Because we live in a fallen world with fallen people. And we, when we encounter this sin or this evil, we, we have two choices in how we respond. And, and David is going to kind of outline those two choices for us in Psalm 36. First, we can focus on the evildoer and his sin. Now, what happens when we do that? Well, I submit to you this morning that when you focus on the sinner and their sin regularly, it's going to lead you to anger, bitterness, feeling anxious, feeling depressed, impatient, ultimately indifferent, ungrateful, and isolating yourselves in the hopes of never getting hurt again. When you focus on the sin in the center, and that's your focus, ultimately where that's going to lead is isolation. Pulling away from any kind of community for fear that you might get hurt again. But David says there's another option. This is the one that he prefers that you take as a believer. And that's to focus on God and his glory. Now, when we do that, when we focus on God and we focus on his glory rather than the sinners and their sin, it, it leads us to a different place. We, we find ourselves experiencing joy, peace, love, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our perspective changes when we stop focusing on the sin and sinners in this world and instead focus on God and his glory. And these two ways of living point back to kind of David's overarching point in Psalm 36. And it's an, it's an important point for us today, especially in the world that we live in. And the point that David wants us to get is that we can be stable in an unstable world. That we can be stable when it feels like the world is just falling apart all around us. We as believers, when we are focusing on God and his glory, can be gloriously consistent. See, I don't think we think about that too much, but consistency is, is one of those things that really brings God a lot of glory. Because when you're you know, exceptional for a few months and then you disappear for a few months, then that leads people to think, well, did, did he ever really believe it in the first place? But when you're gloriously consistent, and maybe you're not as great as that person who was really great for a few months and then disappears for a few months... But in that consistency, you bring God so much glory. How do you do that? How do you remain consistent? Well, you've got to be stable in an unstable world. You can't go run and hide every time something crazy happens. You, you just can't go and stick your hand in the sand and say, well, I, I just don't know what's going to happen. I don't. The Bible it tells us what's going to happen. We Christians can be consistent. We can be stable in an unstable world. We don't have to fear the conspiracy theories. We don't have to fear all of the, the things that are happening in our world because we know the one true and living God who never changes. The world changes. The news changes. People change. But he never changes. And even though our world is falling apart, we don't have to be falling apart. In this sin-filled world, we know as believers that our Lord loves us and that we are his protected people. So we don't have to be shaken by the chaos and the uncertainty that's all around us. If we are in him, and his unfailing love, then there's nothing that this sinful world can do to rattle us. Psalm 36 is about how to be stable in an unstable world. Let's read the psalm together. It's just 12 verses this morning. We're going to read it together as a church. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out of hate. The roads of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of the arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Amen. So I want to break this down. I think it's best broken down into four parts. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, where I think the, the big idea, the big point there is don't be surprised that sinners sin. And then in verses 5 through 9, we're going to focus on God instead of the sinners all around us. And then in verses 10 and 11, we're going to see David praying for the believers and praying for himself. And then finally in verse 12, we can rest assured that God will prevail. So let's start with that first section, verses 1 through 4. Don't be surprised when sinners sin. David opens up this psalm saying, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So, so David is basically telling us that, that sinners are sinful and that they don't fear God. When, when David considered the wickedness of the world, the Lord revealed to him the, the, the sickness, the, the sinfulness of the human heart. Now, in many ways, Paul's description of human sinfulness in the book of Romans mirrors what David is telling us here in this psalm. Sinfulness is a willful rebellion against God's authority over us, which results in breaking his law. Corruption, or corrupted by our own fallen nature, our, our sinful hearts, they're not, they're not merely wicked, but desperately wicked, as Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us. We are naturally bent away from obedience to God. That, that's just not what we want to do. That's just not who we are. The wicked persist. They're, they're consistent in their rebellion against God, having no fear of him. Right? That, that, that's one of the ways in which they are consistent and being persistent is because they, just, they, don't, they don't fear God. So it's like, well, I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. I can act however I want. And this word here, fear, I just want to point out to you, is not the same Hebrew word when they talk about fear of the Lord. The, the word that's being used here is different. It refers to the emotion of fear, of, of dread or terror. When, when you're talking about the fear of the Lord, you're talking about an awe or a reverence toward God. Not the emotion of, oh, I'm afraid of God, but, but I am amazed by God. I am in awe of who he is. I am reverent before him. But the wicked, they, they don't fear the Lord. They, they have no dread or terror of the Lord, and they should. Reckless, habitual sinners ignore the truth. What's the truth? Well, the truth is one day they're going to answer for everything they do. 
Every word, every thought, every deed is going to be judged. If they were aware, if they understood, if they believed that, they would act differently, but they don't. They don't have any fear of this judgment because they don't believe there is a judgment. Paul quoted this verse in Romans when he described our natural sinfulness in Romans 3, 18. Not only are they sinful, not only do they not fear the Lord, but they also exalt and flatter themselves. You see that in verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Even though God's word clearly highlights our sinfulness as human beings, our natural tendency is to deny that truth. I often say this to people. Do you know who we lie best to? Ourselves. That's who we lie best to. That, that's what's happening here. Is they, they're lying to themselves saying, you know what? I'm not, I'm not as bad as God says. I, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, yeah, I do some bad things every once in a while. But generally speaking, I'm a good person, right? What are, you, what are, what are they doing? They're flattering themselves. Because even when you're doing those good things, how many times are you looking around going, did anybody see me do that good thing? Anybody, anybody notice that? Did you, did you see how good I was? Let me make a Facebook post about how good I... Did you see that thing I did? Right? Even when we're doing good things, we do it sinfully. We flatter ourselves to think that we are above God's diagnosis of our hearts. Many people, sadly never receive God's salvation because they can't accept the fact that they are sinners. And if you're here this morning, I want you to understand and hear me very clearly. That's the threshold. You've got to pass over that threshold first. You, you can't just be drawn to the love of God and all that kind of stuff without first realizing you are a sinner and that you need saving that's step number one. It's fundamental. You need to understand that this morning. Instead, so many of us are blinded by self-conceit. We lie to ourselves thinking that we're better than we actually are. It's only the light of God's word that will break through the lie so that we're able to finally see ourselves for who we truly are. Some of you have had that experience. You've gotten to that place where you've realized. You, you've spent your whole life saying, man, I'm a pretty good person. And then one day God just pulls the curtain back. And you begin to see yourself for who you truly are. And it's in that moment that salvation, the light of salvation begins to break into your dark, hardened heart and start to bring about new life. Verse 3 David says the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So they speak wickedly. They're liars. They're deceitful. And they reject wise and good behavior. The, the sinfulness of our fallen nature infects every single part of our lives. That's what David's trying to get us to see here. But this is especially true of our speech. David describes the words of the wicked as wicked and deceitful. The Hebrew word here for wicked has two shades of meaning. First, trouble and mischief, but also emptiness and worthlessness. 
which is sometimes described as a, a vanity of profanity, suggestive talk, useless conversation. Deceitful here, it means to, to signify the intentional misleading of someone else through a distorting or withholding of the truth. But it's not just their words, David reminds us here. The, the works of the wicked are also worthless. They, they don't consider or think about what is wise. I mean, all what, reading through the book of Proverbs is all about gaining wisdom and understanding and knowledge. The knowledge of God, not just knowledge in general, but the knowledge of God. How to live a wise life. David is saying they're the opposite of that. They, they reject that. Neither do they care about doing good. Because as a wise person who understands their own sinfulness, who understands their own condition, they understand the light of salvation that is broken through to their heart leads them naturally to serve others and to bring that light to them. But not the wicked. They just do what they want to do. They, they do what they like. They recklessly follow their own corrupted hearts, thinking only of themselves and, and how they can fill the appetites of their fallen nature. Then in verse 4, David continues his description of the wicked. He says, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good, he does not reject evil. They said, listen, this, this is how bad these guys are. It's not just during the day that they are wicked. It is while they are lying awake at night, they are plotting the evil that they're going to do the next day. How can I take advantage of this person? How can I get one up on this person? How can I steal from this person? And then when they wake up the next morning, they follow that sinful path that they planned the night before on their bed. See, their wicked hearts seldom rest, even at night. They dream of, of this world's delights. That's their focus. That, that, that's what they're trying to attain. They're trying to get fame or fortune or power or money or whatever it is that, that they deem as worthy and is delightful in this life. And again, they forget that they will one day open their eyes before the throne of God to be judged by Him. When they rise up from their sleep, they just pursue the path that they've been dreaming about all night. Now remember, guys, it's because we are all sinners... This is also true of us. This description that David is describing here in the first four verses of Psalm 36, it also affects us. Because as believers, we still possess a sinful nature. Like that old man is still there warring in our body. And we must be not only aware of that, but we must recognize the dangerous potential of sin and stay close in our fellowship with God. 
Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves sliding back into those old ways. Sliding back into those old traps, those old lies, if you will. We must battle our fleshly desires daily. I love the the quote by John Owen. Either you're killing sin or it's killing you. Those are your only two options. There is no neutral. There is no treading the water. There is no, I'm just going to get by today. Your get by today means sin won. You're either fighting the sin and killing it or it's killing you. We need to be praying constantly, working on controlling our thoughts, strengthening our spirits, and obeying God's holy word through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, it's it's through that power of God's Spirit who dwells in us that we can have victory over this sinful nature that David is describing so vividly here in these first four verses. It's only him who can deliver us from sin's power and allow us to walk in a way that pleases God. But David shifts away. He's he's very honest, and and God reveals to him the the depth of the wickedness of the human heart. But but then there's a shift in verse 5, and and that shift is toward a focus on God and his glory rather than the sinners that are all around him. He starts out in verse 5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. David is now contrasting the instability of the wicked world with the stable, unfailing love of God. God loves sinners. And he longs to give you eternal life this morning. He's abundantly good, even to those who don't know him. His mercy is is limitless, and his faithfulness is vast, he says in verse 5. David begins this presentation of God by praising his his boundless mercy. It, It just knows no end. The love of God is so vast that, that it can't be contained even within the boundaries of this earth. Therefore, David said it, it overflowed into the skies throughout the universe or the heavens. God's faithfulness is his dependability, his trustworthiness. He's like a a rock. The Lord is is firm and steady, unchanging and unmovable. He is unfailingly loyal to us. And man, he will never let us down. Verse 6, he goes on, he says, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgment are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. His righteousness is as high as the highest mountain. And his justice reaches as far as the depths of the deepest seas. David is is talking about the attributes of God here that are too often overlooked. His righteousness, his, his judgment, his justice. Many think of God as just this God of love. And, and he is. But they they do that totally ignoring that he's also a God of judgment. God's righteousness, David said, is like mighty mountains. 
As, as the mountains tower over the earth, the Lord's righteousness looks down on everything that is happening in this world. Nothing is outside of his control. Not even the stuff that happens in Washington, D.C. is outside of his control. God's righteousness is like a, a mighty mountain. And as mountains tower, so does the Lord tower over it all. And then in contrast to those towering mountains that ascend above the earth, the, the deepest depths of the ocean extend thousands of feet beneath the earth's surface. You, you guys realize that there is so much of the earth's, uh, or the, the sea that we have not even discovered yet? That they are still every day finding new creatures that they didn't know existed. And yet David is saying, God's righteousness extends even to those depths. His judgments go to the places that we don't even know exist yet. David is painting a vivid picture here for us. God's justice delves deep into everything that occurs in this world. Why is that important? Well, it's important because it, it plunges beneath the surface. Many of you have probably had this experience going to church at some point in your past, what some people refer to as a surface Christianity. That, that you, you come to church and you gather with a group of people and they look the part and they act the part on Sunday morning, but then you see them during the week. And you can tell that Christianity doesn't really go any deeper than the surface. But David is reminding us that God plunges beneath the surface our words, our deeds, our thoughts, the deepest motives of our heart. God sees. Nothing is hidden from God's judgment. All of men's secret works will be examined and justly rewarded by him. You see that in Revelation 20, 1 Corinthians 4. People may think they're getting away with things. People may think, Man, I got the pastor fooled. I got my mom and dad fooled. But you can't fool God. David wants us to see that God's judgment plunges to the depths of our soul. Then in verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Unfailing love is the same Hebrew word as mercy here in verse, that we saw in verse 5. His, after citing the, the vastness of his steadfast love, David proclaimed its value. It's, it's, it's priceless. David says you, you can't put a price on his steadfast love. It's extremely valuable. It, it's the same word often used to describe precious gems, which are valuable because of their rarity. God's love is so precious, precious that its value just it, it cannot be measured. When we truly understand how valuable God's unfailing love is. 
We will run to him in a time of trouble. When we undervalue his steadfast love, we run away from him in times of trouble. We fear him in times of trouble because we don't understand the value of his unfailing love to his people. But when we do, and trouble comes, we will run to him. We see that there in the metaphor that David uses in the shadow of the wings. And again, he's kind of depicting a, a hen pulling, pulling her chicks underneath her wings to cover them and to hide them. from the presence of danger. In the same way, we're, we're like helpless chicks and we need to learn to instinctively run under God's wings. We who know the Lord and trust Him should flee to Him for our refuge and protection. God's love provides all the necessities of life God is a God of abundance, David says in verse 8. The feast of abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. See, as, as children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we, we are part of God's household. God, our, our heavenly Father, is providing for our needs. And in God's house, there's more than enough for everyone. We, we don't have to live with a mindset of scarcity. That's the way the world lives. I, I need to gather up all of these dollar bills that I can and put them in my bank account because there's a scarcity. When, when we follow Jesus, when we trust in him, we, we don't have to be burdened by those kinds of thoughts of scarcity because we serve a God of, of abundance who wants to open the windows of heaven and bless his people. But many of us struggle with seeing that blessing because we have this scarcity mindset and we're, we're holding on to the little bit that we have rather than serving those that are around us so that he can then pour more into us. We're holding on to it. I, I, might, not, I might not get any more. This might be all I have. And so we don't experience, we don't understand this, this God that, that David is describing here in verse 8. That this abundant God. But David is not only speaking of material provision. He's, he's also speaking of being spiritually, spiritually, spiritually blessed. Man, speed the tape up. And abundantly so. When we live in God's presence, all of our desires are completely satisfied. Everything our souls crave, everything our souls need is found in Him. In Scripture, the image of the river often depicts God as the, the source of life and all of its blessings. Nothing this world can offer you compares to the delights found in him. He's the only one that can satisfy our thirsty souls. In verse 9, for with 
You is the fountain of life. In your light, do we see light? God's love brings both life and light to all. God is the, is the fountain of life, the source or spring from which all life flows. Acts 17, 28 reminds us, in him we live and move and have our being. Our physical lives come from him, but more importantly, our spiritual lives flow from him. Notice that, that light and life are the exact opposites of darkness and death. As sinners, we enter the world spiritually dead. Our spiritual understanding is darkened by our sinful nature. And yet, out of God's great love for us, God shines the light of truth on us, revealing himself, revealing our sinful condition, allowing us to see the truth. And as we respond to that truth, we respond to the light he gives us. He supplies further light, further understanding, pointing us to the Son, our Savior. In his gracious light, we can finally see the way to salvation and truth. When we follow his light by repenting of our sins and believing in Christ, we receive spiritual life that is abundant and eternal. Now, living in an unstable world with, that's full of wicked people, it can lead us to be discouraged. But, but as this point teaches, we must take our eyes off of all the uncertainty off of all the wickedness, off of all the sin in the world, and instead focus on the faithfulness of God. In the midst of a constantly changing world for the worse, oftentimes, God is unchanging. His love for you is unchanging. He loves the world. He gave his son to die for all including the most wicked like I once was. God shines the light of his love on all of mankind. And as believers, we've seen his light. We've received the life that he offers through faith in his son. And because of this, we will receive all that he has promised us. And let me just remind you this morning what he has promised those who believe in him, those who are his children. He's promised us his mercy. He's promised us his faithfulness. He's promised us his righteousness, his justice, his protection, his provision, his light, and most importantly, his abundant eternal life. We can trust God. We can depend on Him. We can rest in His promises because nothing can separate us from His love. This morning, where are you focusing? Are you focused on what's been done to you in this sinful world by sinners? Or are you focusing on the unfaithful or, or the unchanging love of God?
The third section is verses 10 through 11. David says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Once, once we get our focus back on God and his glory, the natural reaction should be prayer. That, that, that's what should just naturally happen. I shouldn't have to say, I'm going to pray today. When our minds are focused on God and his love and his faithfulness, we should never stop praying. We should be in constant communication with him. Why should this lead us to prayer? Because David realizes that we still live in an unstable and wicked world, right? We're not magically teleported out of this place. We're not magically insulated to the effects of sin, especially the, the, the effects of other people's sins, right? It still affects us. That, that means we need to constantly be turning to him in prayer. So David prays for two things. In verse 10, David asks God to pour out his love and his righteousness on his people. David prayed that God would continue his love and righteousness toward us. By no means was David suggesting that the Lord would ever withdraw his love from us. Indeed, the definition of love, steadfast, unfailing love, assures that God will never leave us or forsake us. David was simply asking God to continue to pour out his blessing on his people. To continue to pour out his mercy to sustain us. Second, he asked God to protect and deliver us from the arrogant and the wicked. So many times in this world, I know it seems as though the wicked get it over on us. And because of that, they become arrogant and belligerent. Pride is, is better translated as, as a, a proud or, or prideful heart here. Arrogance is, is rooted in pride, which is the root of all sin. Like Satan, these wicked people, they, in their arrogance, they rise up in rebellion against God and his will. Now, throughout David's life, he faced plenty of enemies who sought to destroy him. They wanted to try to overcome the plans that God had for his life. David prayed that the, the foot of the prideful and the wicked would never run over him. That the hand would never succeed in driving him away from God's will for his life. So how do we apply this this morning? Well, after proclaiming God's love and faithfulness, notice that David prayed for things He's praying for things that God had already promised. Do you hear me? He's praying for things that God has already promised. Why, why should we ask God for something he has already promised? First, I want you to note that Jesus taught us to do the same thing when praying for our needs, even though the Father knows what we need before we ask in Matthew 6. So David was foreshadowing what Jesus would teach us about prayer. So why should we pray for things that God is already aware of? By asking God for what we need, even though he already knows, 
we acknowledge that we need him. And we're expressing our our total dependence on him. We're letting him know that we know that we need him. It's it's not about him. He, He knows it. He knows what we need. It's about changing us and humbling us and making us see how dependent we are for everything upon his unfailing love toward us. Additionally, I would argue that by praying for and and especially verbally or written, okay? I'm not saying this won't work for when you just pray in your mind, but I'm just telling you there's something powerful about saying it out loud and writing it down that it releases you from worry and anxiety. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's just something about getting it out of your head and into reality that helps to reduce the anxiety. It frees us from the cares of this life and it helps us to focus more on God and his unfailing love. Praying for specific needs, even though God has already promised to meet them, it also keeps us aware of his faithfulness. And it prompts us then to give thanks and glory to him. David ends this psalm with verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. The last point of this psalm is to rest assured that God will prevail. In response to his prayer, the Lord assured David of his ultimate judgment of the wicked. And David ends Psalm 36 by declaring his faith in God's judgment. God knows that, or that David knows that God will righteously judge the wicked, going so far as to say they are already defeated. That's having faith right there. David is claiming God's promise of their doom as if it had already taken place. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Hebrews 11 reminds us. He foresaw the wicked as fallen, thrown down, and not even able to get up and rise again. So how do we take this psalm? What do we do with this psalm? As we look at the instability and the wickedness of our day, like David, we must, be, we must rest in the assurance of God's promise that he will, in his perfect time, judge all unrighteousness and ungodliness in men. Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who do their unrighteousness through who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I know it doesn't always feel that way. I know we live in a time where it feels like lies are counted as truth and truth is counted as a lie. And we can pull our hair out 
and we can let it drive us crazy. Or we can trust that God will judge and make all things right. I know it often feels like the wicked prosper and they get ahead. And the church just is losing on every front. But all those who oppose God will face uncompromised justice. All those people out there in the world who are crying for justice are going to be shocked when they get it. Certainly, they will fall, never to rise again. Psalm 1-5 reminds us, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteousness. We serve a God who is keeping a precise record of their deeds. And not only their deeds, but their thoughts and their heart motivations, every sinful aspect of the evildoer will one day, they will one day be called to give an account for before the righteous throne of God. Then they'll be judged and serve the eternal sentence for their sins. This morning, how are you doing at being stable in an unstable world? Do you find yourself more focused on the sinners and the sin? Maybe even the sin that they're committing against you? Or do you spend more time focused on God and His glory? Think, think about your life. Think about your week. Where do you expend your energy? What, what do you find yourself talking about more? Sinners in sin or God in His glory? The answer to your question, or the answer to these questions, will have a large impact on how you live your life. Whether you will be fearful or faithful. Whether you'll be consistent or inconsistent. It determines whether you'll be stable or unstable. David wants us to be stable in an unstable world by focusing on God and his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us of these truths this morning. And God, I pray before we take communion that we would just take a moment and that we would search our hearts, Lord. We would ask the Holy Spirit to do an inventory. To find out where our focus, where our energy, where our time, where our thoughts, what we're listening to. Is it consumed with the sin and sinners of this world? Or is it consumed with you and your glory? And Father, if we find ourselves coming up short, we, 
I, I pray that we would just confess and repent of that, Lord. We, we would not leave here saddened, depressed, discouraged, but Lord, we would confess and repent and turn back to you and come and partake of the Lord's Supper, praising you. Because of what you've done on the cross to enable us to be able to have your righteousness, your mercy, your grace, your love, your unfailing love for us this morning. And Father, maybe there's someone here this morning that has lied best to themselves. I, I pray the light of the Holy Spirit would break through that lie this morning and they would see their need. They would acknowledge that they are a sinner and that they do need you. And Lord, you'd work salvation in their hearts as they confess and repent of their sin that you would be faithful to give them a new heart. One empowered by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray today would be the day that they would come to know this unfailing love David talks about in this psalm. I encourage you to prepare your hearts. And then when you're ready, come and respond by worshiping through the Lord's Supper. Taking that piece of bread that represents his body that was broken for us. Dipping it into the wine that represents his blood that was shed for us. So that we might have the eternal life that comes from your unfailing love. As you continue to pray, come as you're ready.